This week, I've got Federico Vitici. He uh, does a lot of different things, including Mac Stories, App Stories, and our favorite podcast, Connected, which um, I'm super glad to have you here, Federico. Thanks for coming. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to say that now I've I've connected the dots and have had all three of you guys on the podcast. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yes, yes. It's it's wonderful. And if you guys haven't listened to their show, uh, you, you should be because it's one of the premier Apple podcasts out there. And as is all the work that you do, um, especially over at Mac Stories lately. And that was part of the reason I wanted to pull you on this week is every year you do the definitive iOS review guide, uh, <laughs> anthology, however you want to describe it, where you, you break down everything that's new in iOS and that's been it's been a heck of a project for you lately. Yeah, um, when I started doing this years ago, um, basically I had no idea what I was getting into. I used to be back in the days of iOS six, and so for context, Mac Stories um, exists. Uh, I launched it in two thousand and nine, so it just turned uh, ten a few months ago. Back Congratulations! In um, that's a big deal. Thank you. And when I started doing this, uh, they were not reviews about iOS. I started with iOS 5 and iOS 6. I wouldn't do a comprehensive review. I would just do like, like, a, uh, like a personal story about some specific features or some specific angles of, on the new version of iOS. And then after doing a, a bigger than usual story uh, about iOS 8 with extensions, was the year that Swift also came out at WWDC. And that sort of happened, I think, uh, if not in conjunction, but at least the year before uh, John Syracuse stopped doing his macOS reviews, I thought, well, maybe I should just go all in and do an actual review of the next version of iOS. And sure enough, with iOS 9, um, which also played very nicely for my strategy in terms of it was the year iOS 9 launched uh, in 2015. So that was the year that uh, the iPad got all the big multitasking features. <laughs> that was a good one. So split view and slide over and all, all that, that multitasking um, functionality was new. And so that's when I did my first proper iOS review. And um, I continued doing that every year since. Um, it's always been a challenge. But I think especially this year with iOS 13 and iPadOS 13, there's been such a fascinating, at least for me, disconnect between the reviews that I've seen from other websites and the review that I've put together. And I don't mean to, I I don't mention this to brag, but it's just... You you can brag, I don't mind, you're allowed. I think you do a great job. No, (laughs) thank you, but it's not that. It's uh, for the majority, for the majority of people or at least tech publications, iOS 13 has been a relatively minor upgrade. Uh, they mentioned uh, dark mode, and they mentioned, you know, maybe the new reminders, and that was about it. But for the kind of review that I want to do on Mac Stories, it was a massive update. And when you factor in uh, iPadOS, as well as the new Shortcuts app, it just became this massive project that um, turned out to be the, the biggest review that I've ever done. And, and I don't I never mean to hit like a like a specific word count. That is not my priority. My priority is I want to cover everything that I can possibly cover by myself. And so all the features taken together between iPhone, iPad and shortcuts, it turned out to be this seventy five thousand word novel that is incredible <laughs> that's more words than i write uh since high school so i'm i'm definitely impressed and i mean the having you pick up the almost you know pick up the mantle in a way since john Syracuse has stopped his in-depth reviews is a, a very well-timed transition because it's also as the emphasis of a lot of our work moves from the desktop to our phones. Like I'm I'm the kind of user that still gets most of my work done on the Mac like compared to say Mike Hurley. I can't I don't do really serious heavy lifting on either iPads or my phones. The Mac is very central to me, but every year the iPhone does a little bit more and for many people the iPad does a little bit more and you've definitely been able to kind of bring us over in that transition as many of us stop using our desktops or laptops as much and start leaning more heavily on our mobile devices. It's it's really it's good timing, and I think we all just we miss those days. Uh, you know, when when John stopped writing his, it was like, oh, I kind of liked settling into a very long in depth article, and having you do it now gives me that opportunity because 
there aren't a lot of really deep, thoughtful pieces like this that come out every year. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I appreciate giving us something chunky to, to dig into. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, uh, it's always, um, I still struggle to believe that um, so many people actually actually tune in for the review. Uh, you know, for all the talk that we hear about um, long-form publishing on the web is dead and nobody wants to read long-form stories anymore, I... I got numbers that tell a different story, <laughs> yeah. and and it's it's so wild to me that you know there's people that take a day off at work so they can read the review in a single session mm-hmm. for a whole day. Like that is you shouldn't do that, honestly. <laughs> you really shouldn't. But there's people that do that, and and I think it's I feel I feel very lucky that I can do this. It's a it's a challenging project, yeah, as you can imagine. You know, it requires hundreds of hours of work but um it's almost like i i feel like it's a, it's a privilege that i get to do this every summer and uh, my my only hope is that maybe next year it'll be a little easier for me in terms of like i don't want to write 75,000 <laughs> words every summer if yeah. possible but we'll see what happens i guess yeah. well so this is why i was glad to be able to talk to you myself because unfortunately i don't I don't have time to read 75 million words. Uh, mm. I, you know, I, I, I go through and I try to find like, here's the parts that are relevant to me, but I would love for you to help me and, and the audience figure out what are some of those key things that, especially things we might've missed in the keynote, mm. you know, Apple has their marketing points, but I feel like power users or people like professionals that are getting their jobs done on their computers and already know the basics have a lot of value from some of the details that you find. Sometimes those details will make a bigger impact in our day-to-day use than the easily marketable stuff that Apple talks about. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I don't know I don't know if you have anything that comes to mind, but what are some exciting things that you found through the course of this review? Hmm. That's a good question. So I would say, first of all, don't, don't pass on the new Reminders app. Um, you may have an opinion on Apple's Reminders app that is based on what it used to be until a few months ago. It used to be a terrible app, honestly. Uh, It got redesigned the last time in 2013 for iOS 7. It had this absurd design based on swiping different cards and, you know, it had this paper texture. But the new one, it's not perfect, but I've found myself using it as an actual task manager. And it's got so many hidden features that I'm honestly surprised Apple was able to, you know, the Reminders team was able to convince management to, to, to do this kind of upgrade for Reminders. So, for, for example, you can have, uh, of course, multiple lists. Uh, and, of course, the design is all new. You got a proper sidebar. Everything is so much faster, uh, especially on iPad. You got this sidebar. You can view your lists and your tasks at the same time. You can organize your lists in folders. So you can create groups. You can type due dates using natural language. Mm-hmm. So you can just enter uh, something like tomorrow at 5 p.m. or Monday at 1 a.m. or something. And it'll accept your input. So you can, uh, you know, it saves you so many taps when it comes to entering dates. You can create subtasks. So you can have reminders inside other reminders. And each of those subtasks, they can also have their own due date or their own attachment. Speaking of which, you can have attachments for reminders now. So you can attach um, pictures or PDF documents. No, not PDF documents. uh, Pictures or links from the web, and they all have a rich preview inside reminders. Um, You can, uh, of course, you can still share lists with other people. But you can also have uh, different types of uh, triggers. So it's so much easier, for example, to to do things like uh, when I get in my car, uh, remind me to, I don't know, call somebody. And whether you have a CarPlay car or a Bluetooth-enabled car, it'll still work. And that trigger is is, uh, exposed right there in the new Reminders keyboard. So there's a lot of these different, uh, perhaps small, but in, in aggregate, Features that really have an impact on how you can manage your tasks with Reminders. And the beautiful part of it all is that you can still use Reminders as a simple to-do app, but you can also use it as a task manager because you got subtasks. You got all these other features that really, 
you know, I used to used to to do it before. I used uh, things and Omni Focus, but I've been using Reminders for a year, uh, and then the latest app, um, the new app since June, and honestly, it works really well. This it sounds pretty perfect to me because the, the way I do project management uh, when I'm not working with the team, just for my personal life which is constantly in disarray, um, is that, so don't, nobody take this as advice. This is just how I end up living. I actually, I use the old reminders app quite a bit, but in the simplest possible way that because it's the default Siri integration, Mm -hmm. it's the way that I just say, um, you know, Hey, remind me to do this and do that. And I check them off as I go. And that, that worked pretty well for me. I mean, it generally figured out what I wanted to say and, and, got the job done. Uh, and lately I'd been using uh, TickTick uh, as my to-do list, mm, um, kind yeah. of like experimenting back and forth. I like its interface a bit more, but now that you say all this, it it definitely means I will be going deeper mm. into reminders. I love the default integration, the fact that it is just yeah. part of the whole ecosystem and, and easy to access. And I've always liked the idea of managing subtasks of projects a little bit more. My background is in software development, so I would, you know, work with teams where we have, uh, you know, things like Jira and Asana and like full project or whiteboards where everything is broken into subtests. So I know how effective that can be. I've just always struggled as an individual to make it worth that time investment. So if the built-in reminders app can make that easy for me, that that sounds like a, a, a pretty big win. I also lean really heavily on the Notes app right now as mm. uh, as a to-do thing. Once they added the checkboxes, yeah. I, I started actually doing to-do lists pretty often in the Notes app, especially for when I'm doing things like YouTube videos. It's great for shot lists or you know, make sure you say all these talking points as you go through and I can check them off. So those two together are, are feeling pretty good lately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to your point of reminders, um, having the the default integration and all the special hooks with the system, one example of that in in iOS thirteen is um, there's a new type of trigger that you can associate to a reminder, and that is remind me when I'm messaging somebody. So this is oh. an exclusive feature that basically combines iMessage and reminders, so you can um, you can create a reminder that will show you a notification when you're texting somebody. So as soon as you send a f- the first message to an uh, to a contact huh. that you specified beforehand, the reminder will show up and tell you, hey, because you're texting John, um, here's what you need to do. And you can create these reminders using Siri. So you can do things like remind me to tell him about the report when I'm texting John or something like that. Or you can create it uh, within the Reminders app. There's a contact picker. And this is the kind of example that shows you how Reminders, because it's made by Apple, and iMessage is also made by Apple, they can integrate with each other in a way that wouldn't be possible with a third-party app. So that's also new this year, and I think it's a really powerful option. That's really smart. Does it happen to support mail yet? It sounds, I mean, if you didn't no. say it, then I guess it doesn't, but because <laughs> it's only iMessage. Yeah. Because yeah. if that comes in the future, that would, that's going to be especially powerful for me because that's when I'm writing more stuff to clients. So I might delay sending an email because I have to, you know, have time to write a longer one. So it's going to be this afternoon that I write it and I'd love to get that reminder. But I'll take the text reminders too. <laughs> it also sounds pretty good. Oh, yeah, and if I forgot to mention, Federico is also the uh, expert in all things shortcuts. <laughs> so uh, if you need to know anything about automation, you're the guy to talk to. Are there any cool new hooks into reminders that like you're building shortcuts for or anything like that? See, unfortunately not, which is surprising because all the reminders actions are still the same as iOS 12. Um, so all the new features that reminders supports, uh, like subtasks or the new... Uh, URL field, uh, that's not supported in Shortcuts yet. And I complained about this in my review and I brought it up with a few friends who work at Apple, like, hey, why don't you have the new Shortcuts, uh, the, the new reminder stuff in Shortcuts? And um, I get the impression that they're very much aware of it and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if before iOS 14, uh, we we get all new reminders actions, which is sort of the, there's a bigger topic here, I guess, of the new shortcuts in iOS 13 um, and this new 
parameter API that developers can integrate with. Based on the conversations that the conversations that I've had at WWDC and later this sum, in the summer, um, the idea is that in addition to enabling developers, so third-party developers, to integrate with shortcuts, uh, these new parameters will enable different teams at Apple to also support shortcuts. And so the hopefully we should see more Apple apps actually offer uh, shortcuts integration because they have a proper API that they can also support. And we saw some examples of this um, with Mail, for example. It has a new shortcuts action to send, to compose an email from shortcuts. And you have all these different fields uh, for the recipient and the subject and the body text. And that's all based on the same API that is available to third-party developers. So... Ideally, uh, it's not just developers and third-party apps from the App Store that can support shortcuts, but now teams at Apple don't have to um, come up with a private API anymore. They can just say, well, sure, we'll integrate with the, with the regular API that other developers have, and that's it. And we'll have, I don't know, shortcut support in reminders or notes or um, mail. And uh, right now we're stuck in this sort of a weird place where some Apple apps are taking advantage of these features, but others are not. And so, for example, the notes actions are still basically all the old ones. Uh, the reminders actions, they don't support the new features. Uh, other apps do, like Safari, for example. So it's a, still a bit in flux in terms of uh, adoption from Apple itself. It sounds like the right direction, though, because I, yeah. personally, I'm not a big shortcuts user because whenever I think of the shortcut that, oh, this is the thing I would actually use, like this is one I would use all the time, I dig in and it turns out there isn't a, a, a hook mm. for it yet. I don't yeah. have a way to actually do that specific <laughs> thing. Because um, I'm, I'm, I know you don't have this problem, but I think a common regular person problem is thinking of what automation will actually help them day to day. Like what are things that, really do work because it takes a bit of creativity to come up with those those automation tasks and I've always struggled to find ones that I end up going back to so you know I create a little grid of like oh here's a bunch of shortcuts I could imagine might be useful and then in the end I only use one or two of them and I can't create the three or four other ones that I had ideas for uh, so the, the one that I use probably the most often is resume overcast <laughs> that's been a very handy shortcut for me and then also being able to combine multiple images for say, composing a tweet. You can just put like little grids of images together. I, I like that one. One that I was tweeting about, and I, I think you were responding to it as well, is being able to adjust camera settings with a shortcut. Mm. The big one being uh, frame rates and resolution because unfortunately there's still no easy way to do that inside of the camera app. I mean, I, this seems so simple and like it should already be there. But right now you need to go into settings and find camera within it and go inside of that. And often, depending what you've been doing, like as you navigate, so if you go into settings, make a change in camera, sometimes when you come back to settings, it'll have bumped you back to the home settings screen so yep. you're not inside of camera anymore and you have to, and it really slows things down. So a common use case for shooting real video, like if you're actually doing video production, is you're going to be switching back and forth from your regular speed footage to your slow motion footage. And the way Apple handles slow motion is they th they only think of slow motion as extremely slow, like 120 frames per second or 240. And the quality really drops down. The resolution is 1080 or maybe, no, I think it's all 1080. But it I honestly think they're upscaling. Like it looks like a pretty bad 1080. So mm -hmm. the highest quality slow motion you can get is the 4K 60, but that isn't considered slow motion to Apple. So when I'm switching back and forth between slow motion and regular, I always have to go back to the settings app and that drives me kind of crazy. Or I need to use a third-party app. So is, is there going to be a solution to this? Is this something I can do with shortcuts? You will not be able to actually change the setting from shortcuts, <sighs> unfortunately. The only workaround that I came up with and actually published a couple of days ago on Mac Stories is I figured out a way to at least open that specific setting screen from shortcuts. Um, so there's um, uh, these um, URLs that Apple is using for settings 
And um, after a few days of sort of reverse engineering the way that they work, I came up with this list of settings that this list of links that when you open them via shortcuts, they will take you directly to a specific page of the settings app and sometimes even to a specific section of a page of the settings app. And for the camera, let me take a look, but I believe that uh, I figured out the setting to take you um let's see camera so you can you can either go to the main screen or you can go to the record video screen or record slow-mo screen so it will not change the setting for you yeah it will it will not change the setting for you but at least it'll take you directly to that screen so you don't need to do the navigation yourself yeah I, i would still use that you can add the shortcut to your home screen so you're gonna have um an icon that runs the shortcut and takes you directly to the to the setting page. All right. Well, I'm going to read that article and, and, and try it at least because this is something I do all the time. And I'm sure some people are yelling at me like, well, why don't you just shoot in Filmic Pro, which mm. makes sense. Why don't you? So Expl- I've, Explain it to me. I've been, I've been toying with Filmic Pro for years now. I mean, it's uh, it got a lot of attention because of the latest keynote, but all filmmakers have known about it for quite a while. It's been a very powerful app for a long time personally i find the interface to be so painful it Mm. (laughs) i I really don't like the the ui the design of of using it and i often find myself slowed down so much trying to shoot with it that i'm missing the shots that i want and the only reason i'm going to shoot video on my iphone is to make it quick like to make it simpler than shooting on a bigger camera which I realize that's not necessarily the case for everybody. Like in your case, there's a lot of the times that you're out in the world and you don't have a bigger camera with you. So you're going to be shooting everything on your phone. You want to get the highest quality possible. Filmic Pro can do that. It has some really cool tools like um, the ability to set the bitrate to much higher levels. So there will be less artifacting and less compression and you're able to make stronger adjustments to the the colors if you want to when you're editing, you know, say back at home in Final Cut, you can Mm -hmm. rate it much more strongly. And there are other color profiles as well, like having a log. Filmic Pro created a special log profile just for the way that Smart HD, well, it's not called Smart HDR, the extended dynamic range of iPhone video works because it has a very specific look to it. So they created a log gamma curve, which, you know, log is shooting in a very low contrast, low saturation mode. So you add that back in post and you get more dynamic range, more color flexibility. But making those adjustments later, you can make, you can really break the image if the image is compressed. You know, just like taking a compressed JPEG and adding filters onto it, it brings out a lot of those artifacts. Same with video. And if you shoot in log and try to adjust something that's very compressed, it looks terrible. So shooting in log with a really high bit rate gets you the highest possible quality out of your iPhone. So like I said, usually when I want the highest possible quality, I'm using a bigger camera. So I don't find it super useful. Um, Usually the other third-party app that I'm shooting with on my phone is is Spark Camera, which is a sponsor of the show. But I I do use it all the time because it gets me, it helps me make things quicker. And that's the reason I shoot on my phone is to to do it faster. Yeah, I... I think I played with Spark Camera before. And one thing I appreciated is the fact that it allowed you to create multiple sections or segments of a video uh, by just holding down the shutter button and letting go. Like uh, That's the app, right? That allows you to exactly, have like yeah, multiple... That's yeah, yeah, that's See, that's something that I really would like to have um, in the default camera app. Uh, but Apple went with the different approach for the quick take uh, feature of the iPhone 11 that you can you can hold down the shutter button to create a to create a video, but uh, every time you let go, the video it's is new, saved. Yeah, so it's a new video. It's a new video. So. I every time I've met people from Apple that are on the relevant teams, I keep telling them and hammering home, you guys need to fix the Clips app because Clips could be oh my God. <laughs> such a big app. Like yes. It could be something that everybody was using all the time, super successful. You know, I so, Sorry, Spark Camera. I mean, I'm sure it would take away some of your business if Clips did this, but they need to make videos in 16 by 9. 
it's crazy that you can still only make square videos because it has some really cool features. Like it can do the dictation where, you know, if, especially if you're making say an Instagram story or Instagram videos or Facebook videos, all these social media platforms where people don't always unmute the audio, having the dictation can make a huge difference in how many people actually watch your video. The fact that it's built into clips is a huge advantage over other apps, but, but I'm never going to post square videos anywhere ever. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I don't know why it's they're dragging their heels mm-hmm. on this. Yeah, like, like I say, when I've talked to people, they're like, yeah, we know that would be great. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why it's not there yet. It's, but. it's funny you mentioned clips because on one of my other shows on Relay FM, um, it's called Adapt and it's all about um, working on the iPad. Uh, my co-host, so each, uh, each episode we challenge each other to do something on the iPad and it tends to be like something funny or unexpected or really difficult. And the last time he got... Uh, very very cruel and challenged me to create a video using clips on my <laughs> ipad pro okay now if you don't know clips is also available on the ipad and it can only be used in portrait mode on an ipad pro imagine holding a 12.9 inch <laughs> ipad pro in portrait mode all the time to shoot and edit a video in clips and i got so frustrated when i couldn't figure out how to import a video that you already have in your library in the Clips app. Oh, I haven't actually tried that. Oh, yeah. You, sh- you should try that because what you need to do is when you select a video, it is not enough to add it to your project. You also need to hold down the record button for the whole duration of the video so that you can basically record over the video. Um, no, thank you. <laughs> no, that's not going to happen. And I guess the idea is that they they want to let they want to enable you to import existing videos, but they want you to talk over them, right. so that when you hold the button, you can add your comments on top of oh. a video. Like, I get the idea, yeah, but but you don't want to do that all the time, or even most no. of the time. Yeah. So uh, the clips app has potential. I mean the. The, the the scenes feature that they have based on the true depth camera that's really remarkable yeah, the way that yeah. it works and what it looks like but everything else is just a bit uh, yeah I'm gonna know. I'm gonna stick to Spark camera for now but actually so in other news this is everybody's gonna laugh at me for this I I created a TikTok account this week um, mm. have you do you go okay. on TikTok at all like I mean you at least know it exists I'm sure but. I know, I know what it is I watch videos but I don't have an account <laughs> because I don't think I can be funny enough no so neither, neither do I <laughs> I'm, I'm basically hedging a bet here I if I look back at other social media platforms a lot of them seem sillier or more casual or more ridiculous when they start and based on the growth of TikTok it is getting to a breaking point where it's going to enter the mainstream this year. Before the end of the year, I'm I'm pretty sure it's going to be more than just young teenagers on it. It doesn't mean it'll stop being people dancing and singing, which is a lot of the reason I never signed up for it when it was musically. Mm-hmm. But now it's um I, I could see it becoming something more like Instagram stories, something where people just watch a lot of casual videos or even more like what Vine was. So a lot of the reason that TikTok has been able to be so successful because, you know, its growth is even bigger than Vine ever was, is it gives everybody a formula of what the video should be so they don't have to be creative. I mean, I know when I was 13 or 15 years old, I didn't have a lot of great ideas for videos to make. Like, I, I wasn't really inspired to create a skit like, you know, the great Viners would make. They'd actually come up with their own ideas and make something really creative in seven seconds. And that's, mm-hmm. I found that really impressive. On TikTok, the idea is already there for you. It's like, look, there's a, a skeleton dance, and all you have to do is go do that dance, and you have a pretty good chance of having tens of thousands of people watch that video and getting all this you know, positive reinforcement from social media that we're all slightly addicted to. Um, so it, it removes a lot of the barrier of having a great idea, but still excites people that they will be able to connect with a, a big group. Um, so I, I think that's how it's gotten as big as it has. And same with the lip syncing as well. It's like, just choose your favorite song, lip sync right. to it, and a bunch of people might watch it. 
Um, I think it is getting big enough that it might move past that now. It might become something more like some kind of combination of Vine and Instagram stories. Um, so I don't know. I'm experimenting. I've only posted three videos at this moment. I may not ever, post, I may forget about it by the time I post this podcast. I never post another TikTok, but I'm, I'm there. I'm, I'm experimenting. Maybe I should follow you then. Okay. Oh, you should, yes. I need the followers because <laughs> I think I only have like five. All right. I'll um, be the sixth. But it, uh, oh, anyway, part of this was talking about that I think people are underestimating what, how impactful this kind of really quick response video creation is going to be in the long run because of things like TikTok getting enormous, because Instagram is becoming stories. Like stories are eating Instagram's yep. posts. It, that's what the platform is. Snapchat hasn't gone away, it's still significant. And I think people will always crave a little extra thought and effort put into videos, even though we watch these really casual, you know, pretty crappy videos all the time, give them thousands of views. People appreciate some extra time and attention. So Mm -hmm. I I think when it's easy to make something like that, like to add that extra production quality and you're not spending a long time on it, it's going to go a long way. So I I, I think all of this is going to be even bigger in the future. So I don't, I don't know where I'm going with that now. I'm just, rambling <laughs> no i agree with that and i wish that one of the things that i want to get better at and it probably, it probably sounds silly because my, my main job is not to is not to be a uh, to share videos on, on instagram but i i want to be more judicious about actually sharing something every day uh or at least trying to because sometimes i do some you know, i, I live in rome and uh, you know it's it's a fascinating city it's a fascinating place to live in and I realized that, you know, there's so many things that I could share, but when I'm living the moment, I just forget, which is, that's you may say, well, that, that's <laughs> probably good. Yes, that's probably good for me. Sure. But it's also like, and don't take this the wrong way, but sort of like a wasted opportunity when you think about it. Like yeah. how many people live in Rome uh, that also have, you know, an audience of, of English-speaking people that can, you know, I can reach, um, you know, so many more people than, uh, you know, my friend who has 200 followers and, you know, doesn't uh, have a website or doesn't have an audience, uh, doesn't do this for a living. Yeah, it so, takes 20 hours just to travel to Rome to take photos. So uh, you've got it right there. And this is something that my girlfriend brings up all the time. Like, you should do... You should remember to share more on Instagram and actually use it because then, you know, there's a discussion to be made about, you know, it can be used as a marketing tool. It can be used to, uh, and this sounds horrible, but engage with your audience, like stuff like that. I forget, I forget all the time to do it. And so I, one of the things that I want to try and, and is actually remember to take a picture or, uh, you know, share a story or whatever. Uh, it's something that I've always been terrible at. I, I think it can be really, really powerful. I mean, th- there's becoming this this change, and especially people in, in your world that are writers or podcasters, meaning that most of people's exposure to you isn't seeing you. It's not seeing your yes, face. Yes, exactly. And exactly. so I think of the, the last generation of, well, I mean, there's still a current generation of, of these, these people. So like, you know, John Syracuse is a great example where... I don't see many videos of him. You know, he posts the Destiny uh, videos, but mm-hmm. I don't. Um, I don't have that like the same type of connection that I do say with Mike because mm-hmm. Mike, Mike Hurley, for anybody listening, um, has gotten really great at posting a lot more Instagram stories, more photos of himself. He was doing all these YouTube videos, and I know Mike a lot more because of all that. Like, I have a more. Mm, real connection with them or whatever. You know, it, you feel like you know the person a lot more than when you've only heard their voice and you maybe barely know what they look like or what how their face reads or, you know, there's a lot that you lose either in writing or in podcasting. And I think a lot of people now that are, are actively trying to get their face out there have an advantage. It, it creates a much more direct connection with your audience. So, I mean, I encourage it too. I, I, I know engaging with your audience is a mm. terrible phrase, but like, I don't know, if we come up with a better phrase for it and just talk about, you know, having a human connection with the people that you're working for, you know, you're doing all of this work so that they can live a better life, engage, use their technology in more interesting ways, you know, all the thing, all the reasons that you get excited to do the things you do. It could be a little enhanced by uh, by having this kind of connection. So I encourage it. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, I will. I will try. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to. You can. You're doing a great job as it is too. That's that's fine. No, but that's a good point. Like I, I, I one of the things that I really think about all the time is um, my greatest fear when when it comes to like what could go possibly wrong with my job. Well, first of all, I may be at some point in the future be unable to work because of you know problems in in life. They happen. They happen before. They may happen again. But what is also, uh, you know, uh, a risk? Sort of like, what if, what if I'm... Like, let's think about this if I were running a Kickstarter campaign. What is the potential risk? And the potential risk for me is becoming irrelevant. Like, it's something that I think about all the time. Like, I keep doing this the same way I've always done, but the world is changing around me, and I refuse to change with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And I see this in, in some other websites or podcasts that... They still have an audience, but that audience has increasingly shrunk over time. Yeah. And I want to keep up with the times. I want to keep up with people. I want to make sure that what I do can reach new people, but also be relevant to the modern times. I don't want to be a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Like, if in 10 years the iPad is gone and nobody cares about the iPad anymore, I don't want to be the nostalgic guy writing the nostalgic blog about, oh, the good old days of the iPad. Wait, are you, are you talking about Stephen Hackett right now? <laughs> he's got a different spin and, you know, he's got an iPhone, he's got an iPad, he's got a modern Mac. I don't want to be like some other people that think, no, that's the way that it used to be and it used to be the best way and I don't care about the present. I don't care about what people are doing these days. I'm stuck in my old ways and I'm not changing. And so I don't want to be that person and that involves being, you know, more open to video, more open to share stories, more open to be on social media. Um, It's it's all stuff that I think about all the time. Uh, Especially uh, once I'm done with a big project like the IS review, I'm like, okay, now I should think about other things. I think it's really, I mean, the most important thing is that you're thinking about it. But what's really interesting to me is that I was just having the opposite conversation when I was at camera camp. So this was the the last episode of this podcast was recorded there where uh, Sony brought in a whole bunch of YouTubers that talk about cameras and photography. So this was actually the, the biggest meetup I've had with other YouTubers. And a conversation I've had many times because I also have done more meetups with Instagram like, you know, quote unquote influencers, like people that Instagram as part of their, as a big part of their job. And they have the opposite problem. They're on, <clears throat> they're on what are currently the new platforms. But what you have as an advantage is that Mac Stories and all your podcasts, you completely own and you can make all the creative decisions about where to take them and what you want them to be in the future. And there isn't going to be a day where some, company that runs them over top of you is going to say, okay, uh, you know, now we're demonetizing this, we're, we're taking it all away. At least you still have the control over these things. What I see is a really common problem at, at, on the other side is people are only making their whole income from YouTube or Instagram. Like the, I, I know a lot of people that their whole inc- income is based on Instagram posts. Mm. And that's the only platform that they're focused on. They don't have a YouTube, they don't have a podcast, they don't have a blog, they have nothing else that they control. And so to me, that's a lot of the reason to have this podcast. I mean, this makes the least money of of the things that I do, but to me, it creates some of the most direct engagement and it's an open platform. It's like creating a website. Nobody can stop me from podcasting, which, you know, on YouTube, they can stop me. They can, they could shut down my channel if they wanted, if, you know, Mm -hmm. if I said the wrong thing or, uh, the, you know, TikTok could take over and Instagram goes away and nobody's using it. And I have no TikTok followers. I only have Instagram followers. So now that's all gone. Whereas uh, I I like the ability to have a little more control just Mm -hmm. uh, on podcasts. So it it goes in both directions. And yeah, I mean, I would definitely encourage you to branch out into that other side that you're playing with a little bit less right now. And for anybody out there that might be completely focused on a closed platform, I would also encourage you to look at the open web and, you know, the... RSS works and, you know, there's a lot of things that are are older and more established, but they stick around for a reason. So I think it's good to play both sides. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to talk to you about iOS, but we, I, I I like, I like this tangent. Yeah. But uh, I want to like one last bring around. Is there anything really cool uh, left that we missed? I mean, next I want, I want to hit on deep fusion as well, which I, I don't know if that counts as iOS, but this episode is brought to you by spark camera. And speaking of engaging with your audience, I mean, it's a silly, 
it's a silly phrase. It's uh, it's cheese ball. Like you don't want to engage with your audience. You want to have some kind of real connection with other humans. And catchphrases for it don't really sum up the experience of social media. But this is all tying back to what I actually do love about Spark Camera because it's so simple to shoot and edit videos with it. It means that you spend a lot less time worrying about the production because that's not what people are interested in watching you for. I mean, maybe, unless you're Casey Neistat. People don't want to watch you make videos about making videos. They want to see your life and see the things you're passionate about and experience what you experience. And if you're living inside of your phone or you spend all your time editing in Final Cut, which, I mean, sometimes sometimes that's my life, Spark Camera can save you some of that hassle. To record a video, you just press and hold anywhere on the screen. And to edit a video, you just drag some simple handles back and forth and you can compile a full edited real legit looking video in a few minutes. And I I love doing this for Instagram stories. I I guess I might start trying it for TikTok. You can use it for whatever you like. Do it for your home videos if you want. But do go check it out because it's a great, simple way to create cool videos. Go to sparkcamera.com slash Stallman to find out more. And I'm I'm sorry to tell you guys, there is some very cool new stuff coming. I I have a super secret beta installed on my phone right now. Don't tell Spark Camera that I'm telling you about this, but I have the beta installed and you know what it does. It can record with both cameras at the same time. And you don't even need the latest iPhone 11 for this. This will work going all the way back to an iPhone 10. You can record with two cameras at once and post them together. I'm going to post a story about it today. It's really awesome. I mean, like, this is super fun. We're all going to be using this soon. Go to sparkcamera.com slash Solomon. I already said that, but I'm saying again because they're great. Thanks again to Spark Camera for supporting the show iPad OS. So if you have an iPad, um, you should definitely upgrade from iOS 12 um, because iPad OS changes basically everything. You can create multiple windows for the same app now. You have Expose, just like on the Mac. Uh, and that's in addition to the existing split view and slide over and drag and drop. You can have multiple apps in slide over. So if you have an iPad, you should try this. It used to be the slide over was limited to one app at a time. Now you can have a whole stack of multiple tiny app windows in slide over and you can cycle through them by um, basically swiping over the home indicator at the bottom of slide over it's like having uh, it's basically like having a small iphone 10 multitasking ui inside your ipad it's amazing i use it all the time yeah it looks really cool yeah and i would also recommend checking out the new desktop uh, class safari uh, Safari uh, now behaves like a desktop browser on iPadOS. Uh, you can use Google Docs, you can use Squarespace, you can use WordPress, all these web apps that used to be either broken or just so limited they were barely usable in iOS 12. They are now almost as good as they can be on a real desktop Mac. There's a download manager, so you can download stuff from, from the web. You can watch, you can use the youtube.com website in Safari, and you can watch videos. Still no 4K, uh, but you can watch 1080p HD video in Safari for iPadOS. You can watch Netflix. Uh, if you, for some reason, don't want to use the, the native app, you can go to netflix.com with Safari on iPadOS, and it'll work. Yeah, I would say iPadOS has a bunch of changes. Still some, and of course, uh, you can use uh, USB drives in files, if you have, especially if you have an iPad Pro with a USB-C port, it's super easy. Just plug it in and unplug when you're done. You don't need to eject. You don't need to worry about anything. Uh, still a long way to go in terms of matching uh, all the functionalities that macOS offers. Uh, the audio recording framework is still so limited. It's basically I don't want to say impossible to do a podcast on iPad Pro because I use it, but it's mm-hmm. a whole setup that involves like two different audio devices and a bunch of cables. It's imp- impractical and expensive, so <laughs> I would I wouldn't okay. recommend it. But uh, yeah, iPadOS. Um, it was a it was a huge section of my review, and uh, I'm I'm very excited about the direction that Apple has taken with this. I think some of those things, especially Safari, will completely solve some some people's problems. I, like I said, I, I still don't do a lot of my work on the iPad, but about a year ago, my mom tried to go iOS only and just work from her iPad because she loves it. She uses her iPad all the time. She uses it for a lot of things. But again, she had just 
her computer had broken. So she was like, okay, well, all I have is an iPad right now. Let's see if I can do this. And within about a month, she was like, this isn't working. And I, most of those problems came back to Safari that you couldn't have that full desktop experience. And there's still certain things that didn't work and she couldn't do properly. She has a Squarespace website for her um, art. Uh, she's a painter. And she wasn't able to update it properly and all these things that meant she had to go out and get a laptop. So I think now there's a much more viable uh, workflow for, for somebody like that that doesn't doesn't want to get really deep into it, but has slightly more advanced needs. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. This is going to help a lot of people. Mm-hmm. All right. So give me all the things I need to know about Deep Fusion oh, man, because I'm not fusion. sure I'm not sure that I understand what is going on here. Well, okay. I don't necessarily completely understand either. This just came out mm. yesterday on the developer beta. So I'm still discovering it and, and pretty new to it, but I figured out some of the key things, I think. Um, and by the way, this is my first time doing a developer beta. I created a developer account just for this because I, I never ran them. Before. Well, not since I worked as a developer way long ago. So the, the long and short of it, if nobody saw the keynote, Deep Fusion is an alternative processing algorithm for smart HDR. So instead of doing the smart HDR computation as it takes a photo, it sometimes will use Deep Fusion. Average users probably won't even know that this exists. People that don't listen to this podcast or read your articles will never be aware of it. And they probably didn't know what Smart HDR was in the first place. They just know this is what your photo looks like when it comes out of an iPhone because it happens completely automatically. There's no on and off switch about it for it, which actually I, is a question for you. I don't know how, again, going back to, I don't know how much you can edit settings, but if there was a shortcut to get you to the capture outside of frame. You guys talked about this on Connected quite a bit uh, the other day, mm-hmm. but the the only way to turn off Deep Fusion right now is to turn on capture outside of frame. And I think you guys nailed it in, in discussing that. <laughs> yeah, this was probably a real challenge for Apple mm-hmm. to decide how to balance these two features. There's probably two teams that weren't communicating enough that were working on features that were incompatible. Like, I don't think it's a decision for Apple to not let these two things happen at once. I'm sure they had developed these two really interesting technologies. And at some point before release, they realized like, wait, these can't run together. They don't, they are incompatible. What are we going to do? And this is definitely why they didn't show off the capture outside of frame on stage because they had to prioritize one. They had to decide like, look, if we show everybody both of these and get everybody hyped about them and then say You can only use one at a time. There'll be a a lot of groans and disappointment. So they were quieter about the capture outside of frame, even though it's a really cool feature, but it it doesn't work with Deep Fusion. Mm -hmm. Deep Fusion uses either your primary wide-angle camera or the telephoto if you're using an 11 Pro. It does not work on the ultra-wide. And it, um, you know, it depends how much you care about this kind of thing. The way it's an alter, like I say, an alternative to smart HDR where it's capturing a series of frames the way that it was described by The Verge. They've had the most direct communications with Apple about how this works. Is it starts by creating what they call a synthetic long exposure that's a combination of several different frames that it blends together. And it's already captured those before you press the shutter button. Combines these to create a... Uh, I don't know, <laughs> a long exposure. I don't know. It's like this is this is what has most of the lighting data and the color data from your image. And then when you press the shutter, it captures a very quick exposure that has all of the sharp detail. So uh, in the Photoshop world, there's a way of basically just applying sharpness data over top of an image that doesn't that kind of disregards the color and, and many other things. It's just the edges. And it combines all of that to create an incredibly sharp image. So the biggest difference you're going to see with Deep Fusion, that was a lot of preamble to say the results, is that in low light, and especially the lowest light possible before night mode kicks in, Mm. you'll have much sharper images. And this creates a really weird scenario where in, in some of my tests yesterday, you can get sharper images as things get darker. So if it's not quite dark enough for the deep fusion to kick in, it'll be a bit softer than if you lower the light even more and, and deep fusion starts act, like doing its thing and uh, is able to do that combination of exposures, that will look sharper than 
a little bit brighter of an image, which is very strange in photography. Typically in photography, as it gets darker, it's harder to keep the image sharp. So we're living in a, in a weird world. Th- that was very confusing. <laughs> what, what did I not answer there? No, no uh, that, that sort of makes sense. So just how, just how low we're talking, like just before night mode kicks in, yeah, so you can watch the little... I'm just figuring this out for myself, so I'm not sure if it's true, but there is the night mode indicator that will appear in the top left hand of your camera app as you as you look at things. So I'm, I'm pointing it around right now. Uh, if I look directly at the fluorescent light overhead of me, that little indicator goes away. There is nothing in the top left except the flash button. And if I look towards a darker area of a room, like I have a, I have a black curtain right beside me that helps... Sometimes the night mode indicator is white, meaning that you could, I think it means you can manually, yeah, you can manually turn it off, off and on. And then if I point it at the darkest parts of the room, that indicator turns yellow, which means that it's ready to shoot a night mode image, and it will. So when it's white, that's when I believe that it's going to take a deep fusion image. And when it's yellow, it's going to take a night mode image. And... um I, oh, nobody's so going to understand that except if you so have when it's explained. white yeah when it's white it's oh right not intuitive meant, but no because i don't oh, think that's what okay. the icon means the icon isn't saying deep fusion the icon right. is saying look you could shoot a night mode photo right now and you can manually override it and i i think gruber had a tweet about this i should have gone back and checked but they did reference the nits of the range that deep fusion will be active in. And I know the baseline is at 10 nits, which is a measurement of brightness. There will, that's when it will switch from deep fusion to night mode. So it has a a threshold and a breaking point where all of a sudden Mm. it's like, okay, that's too dark. I can't do deep fusion anymore. Now I'm going to do night mode. So let me ask you this, um, because we've seen a lot of pictures of, of people wearing sweaters and sort of a... Oh, it's great for sweaters, yeah. Okay, so w- what else is it great for? So what is a good, a, a good subject, like a good material or a good setting where one can really test deep fusion and, and compare it to, to the standard shooting mode? So it, it will happen on everything. There are certain times where I, di- I noticed barely any difference. Uh, and I know some examples posted online as well were really minimal differences compared to the tweet that I posted where it was a really visible difference, like much, much sharper in deep fusion. And I, like I was saying before, it's as it gets darker, that difference is very exaggerated. And the reason is because in Smart HDR, as the light got lower, it would crank up the ISO because it, it had to. The ISO needs to go higher to be more sensitive to the light coming in, which generates a lot more noise, especially on small little camera uh, mobile phone sensors. They are very noisy as the ISO gets higher, so they apply a lot of noise reduction. And that's some of that like smoothness you'll see in iPhone photos that isn't, isn't great. It, it never looked very good. The reason that the deep fusion will look so much better is that smoothness is now replaced by sharp detail. So the pores in my skin, like the texture in your skin, you can see it in full daylight. You've always been able to mm-hmm. see it with Smart HDR in full daylight. But once the light got lower, the noise reduction would not be able to tell the difference between the skin texture or hair texture or any texture. I mean, I'm, I'm only referring it to humans, but same with like blades of grass or uh fabric, sweaters, <laughs> anything around you will uh, lose a lot of the detail because of noise reduction and diffusion will bring all that detail back in a really impressive way. So it's not a magic bullet where now all your photos are going to look way better. Uh, you know, if you're shooting outside, deep fusion isn't active. It's not doing anything and your images will be the same sharpness that they always were, which is very sharp. You don't need deep fusion in those cases because it's already sharp enough. Oh, really? So yeah. if you're shooting outside, like... Let's say I'm at the park uh, with with my dogs and it's 4 p.m. So there's plenty of sunlight. And, and you want to make an Instagram post because you're going to post all these Instagram stories. Right. So Deep Fusion will not kick in in that case? Yeah, that's right. It'll just take a regular smart HDR. And the, the easiest way to tell whether huh. a Deep Fusion photo has been taken, it, it's not easy. Because I, I don't think it appears in the EXIF data anywhere from what I've heard so far. I haven't been able to find any trace of it uh, or an indication. Is if you take the photo and immediately click to look at it, like touch the little um, icon of the, of the photo that was just taken and watch the photo. And if after about one second, you'll see it kind of snap into focus. It'll suddenly get yeah. sharper and you can really see it happen. 
then you know it was a deep fusion photo. And if that never happens, it wasn't deep fusion. Um, so other I than that, mm, it's hard to tell. So I took a picture today and I saw that behavior and I thought, okay, so deep fusion worked. But then I took a, I took another picture uh, enabling capture outside the frame. Mm-hmm. So that would disable deep fusion. And I'm comparing both of them now. And I really cannot see a difference in terms of sharpness. I can only see a difference in terms of color right. in that the deep fusion one seems, and I'm probably using the wrong terminology, but it seems more realistic. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other one, which I assume was using Smart HDR, has more sort of a muted colors. Like it, it's got this yellowish tint mm-hmm. to the whole picture. Whereas yeah. the other one is a, is a bit colder in terms of colors, but more realistic. I saw that too, especially when I was shooting a white wall. Uh, like I just I have my feet against a wall. And that's when I saw a big jump in the, the the white balance. So basically, they were just interpreting the scene as being one was was more warm than the other. That I I think that's kind of an artifact. I have a feeling they that that that's not really what Deep Fusion's trying to do. But you're right that there are a lot of scenes where I don't I can't really perceive any difference after the photo's taken. I can't tell which is which. They they look so similar that it's mm. not obvious. What I think will end up happening in the long run, the way we will use Deep Fusion is by forgetting about it. Right. It's not going to be something that you're intent... This is why there's no switch to turn it on or off, is that a lot of the time you can't tell whether it's on or not. And the only reason I could imagine somebody wanting to turn it off is if they want their skin to look extra soft. And so they're annoyed that like, oh, now you can see the the sharpness (laughs) and I dislike that. I want my skin to be very smooth. You know, I don't know. Then like go download Facetune and a apply a filter (laughs) but generally it's just that like in certain circumstances uh which are very common just indoor dim-ish lighting it's just going to look sharper and more like the light was better than it was that's what it's trying to do is give you better light than you actually had access to well then i should try indoor then not at the park anymore (laughs) Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or the park uh, in just after sunset, maybe. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's really optimized for a specific time. What I thought was really interesting, though, is how poorly this was all communicated in the keynote. Like, we all walked away thinking, like, okay, deep fusion, it's going to be some kind of magic that does a mystery who knows what. Like, it was it was so unclear. And now mm. we're having to figure all this out for ourselves and I mean, even when when I got my review unit, uh, Apple didn't mention it. There was no discussion of, yeah. of deep fusion. Yeah. It wasn't briefed on it. So, yeah, same. No mention whatsoever. Uh, yeah. I got a lot of details on capture outside the frame, but no, no deep fusion mentioned. So that yeah. was interesting. Yeah, it's strange. So I, I think I don't know. I'm glad now. I haven't done my in-depth camera review yet. I'm still working on it for my big YouTube video, which just like your iOS review, that's it's my big video of the year. It takes the most time and it gets the most yep. traction. Um, and uh, I'm glad that at least I'll be able to test it with Deep Fusion now because I thought I was going to have to do a separate video later, but that's helpful for me. I'm looking forward to that. It's always, uh, you know, I, I get so many tips out of uh, watching your stuff because I, I feel like uh, there's so much more that I, that I want to know, that I want to do. And so that, that's always helpful and, well, and good luck finishing that. I know <laughs> Thanks, I'm how challenging it. it can be. Well, but the difference for me is I can't do 75,000 words. I have to condense it down to like mm-hmm. max 15 minutes. So it's got to be yep. got to be punchy. But it's helpful to talk to you about it as well because sometimes I assume too much about what people already understand. And I don't right. always know what the average, it's hard to keep perspective. What's the average understanding of photography? Um, and, you know, where do I need to fill in all those blanks? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm probably less than average. So do a bit more <laughs> than what that's I asked. That's exactly, that's exactly <laughs> what I need. Um, the last thing I wanted to touch on is some stuff that's been unique to me. So I just wanted to know if you had seen anything else going on with it is battery life so in the apple watch series 5 there you know we've all had some inconsistency i i think i mentioned it that my first 48 hours were very bad they my watch died instantly and then since then it's been working totally fine i've been getting almost all day life which uh, i think you mentioned unconnected as well that you were you're in the yeah. good battery life club yeah. but it seems yeah, like you got to get kind of lucky Meanwhile, uh, Anya's watch, uh, my wife's watch, was um, for the first day we went to work out. It died in a couple hours. Tried it again the next day. It seemed okay. So I don't know. A lot of weirdness going on there. But also, when it comes to iPhone batteries, everybody else 
is like, wow, these batteries are blowing me away. Like I'm getting more than all day. I it might, it never need to charge my phone again. Uh, and meanwhile, for me, I'm like, I don't know. It kind of feels the same as last year. I definitely have to charge my phone at the end of the day. So I did some just real battery tests of uh, playing 24-hour YouTube videos and recording a time-lapse of it to see what would happen. And I was comparing the iPhone 11 to the iPhone 10R with, with an older battery, right? So the 10R should be uh, performing worse. The first test, the 10R lasted an hour longer than the iPhone 11. That was really weird. So then I ran the test again, <laughs> two more times. Both times, the iPhone 11 ran for a little more than an hour longer than the 10R. So that's what, that's what should happen. But it was weird that one time it didn't. I don't know, I don't know what to think. Like, and when I tweeted about this saying, like, I, I don't feel like the battery is as long as everybody else is saying, most of the responses coming back were saying, like, no, it's much, much better. It makes a big difference. But there were other people that agreed with me that they're seeing about the same battery life. Sebastian DeWitt, uh, who was on the show recently, mm. also said he was getting um, similar battery life to last year. What, what has your experience been so far? It's been so much better. I'm sorry, but I'm also yeah. in the good club for uh, for the battery life. My my phone used to die consistently at right about midnight before, and now I'm seeing that it basically lasts me until 3 a.m. I oh, I got a weird sleep yeah. sleep schedule, sounds, so don't think like don't th- don't think about that. <laughs> don't focus on that. But uh, I get the a solid three extra hours compared That's to great. the tennis max. Yeah, and seems you, to be working so far. You are on the max, the uh, the pro I was max, on the max, right? and you yeah, still are. and I'm on yeah. the yeah. So yeah. I think that might be part of it. I'm using the regular pro, which mm. um, depending mm. whose tests you look at, like Apple said that the 11 should still be uh, no that I. I I think they said that the Pro should be more than the 11, but I think a lot of people's tests are saying the 11 is more than the Pro, so I think I'm on the lowest battery model right now. So maybe that's part of it. I don't know. Or maybe I just use my phone too much and uh, my expectations are a little too high. That, that could also be. Maybe. So, I don't know. I'll have to figure out more. I'm going to keep testing. I Battery tests are really hard to do in a useful way. Like, you can... It starts getting into real science very quickly where mm-hmm. variables you don't realize can be contributing to the battery dying. So I don't think I should be the final source for this. Other people are doing more thorough battery testing. Ars Technica did some good ones. So, you know, they should be the final source. This is just this is just my experience with it so far. You know, when you when you reach the point where you gotta talk about the chemistry of the battery, that's when <laughs> you need to stop. Don't, yes, don't go there. Exactly. I don't I don't understand it. I shouldn't pretend to. But Federico, this has been really great. I appreciate you opening up my understanding about so many things today. Oh, thank you. It's been fun. I always get to learn something new and when I talk to you. And sure enough, I learned a lot of things this time as well. So thank you. So, I mean, if you guys want to see what Federico's already posting a lot of, you should follow him on Twitter because you're great there. And if you want to see all his future posts where he gets super active on social media, you should follow him oh, no. on Instagram as well. You're Vitici on, on both? Or? Yeah, I'm, I'm on both as Vitici. That's V-I-T-I-C-C-I. And now I'm on the hook. I, I have to because you, you, made a, <laughs> you made me promise. I called so. you up. I mean, you can only do it for 24 hours. Oh after this podcast comes out and uh, it'll work out fine. No, no it's, you know, it's good for me. Uh, it's something I, I got to do. I got to do anyway. So, I bet you guys thought I forgot to do hashtag ask Salman this episode. Well, I totally didn't, um, <laughs> but I'm doing it now. And uh, I appreciate you guys sending in your tweets. Again, if you want to get your questions answered here on the podcast or maybe even on Twitter, use hashtag AskStallman and I will, I will get to them. First one comes from Jordan. He says, can you provide some guidance on the difference between third-party camera apps moment halide in comparison with the stock camera on the phone? I sure can. Um, I can't go into a lot of detail between the specifics of each individual camera app because most of the time I shoot with a stock one and I I can very much explain this. I should do a YouTube video about this actually because so many people tweet back at me when I'm posting samples. They're like, why don't you shoot in raw? Like a lot of it's about shooting raw. I've talked about my thoughts on that before. Actually, I received a few other questions about raw, especially when I was doing these deep fusion comparisons. I'll sum it up again real quick here. I don't shoot raw because it takes up a lot of space. The files are big. And if I'm taking an important photo, I usually take a lot of them, like a hundred. There will be tons of photos. And then I'm clogging up my phone with a hundred raw photos. 
And if it has to be high quality anyway, I'm probably shooting it on my bigger camera. So when I need the quality of RAW, I use my big camera. So I don't do it very often on the iPhone. Uh, and, and also a lot of the quality improvements from RAW mostly happen in specific edge cases like low light. Uh, and actually, I got to do some tests. I mean, I'm very curious to get Sebastian back on here after he's updated Halide and see what differences he's found in the night mode rough photos. I don't even know if that's going to be a thing. But what it would do is reduce a lot of the noise, that, or sorry, actually, it would not reduce the noise. So low light photos in the past would have a lot of noise reduction applied to them. So they'd be kind of smudgy and blurry. When you'd shoot raw, it wouldn't do any noise reductions. You'd see all this noise, but it would look much sharper. Um, you could use something like Lightroom to then again, remove some of that noise, but it would have this perception of being noticeably sharper, but it only really applied to lower light photos. I, there, there are some differences, but it's, it's just not worth it to me. Anyway, the question was more about choosing which app you're going to use uh, I like Halide, and honestly, maybe it's a, a lot of that is because I like the way that Sebastian is part of the community. You know, like they create these really helpful articles about updates to the latest camera, and you know, Moment they are great in the community too. Halide is just like specifically very involved in camera phone camera information, which I am always desperate for more of that information. So that's a lot of the reason I choose Halide. I also like the design. In the end, it doesn't matter that much which camera app you use. They're generally capturing similar things. I do like that as well. Hell, I did this customized smart HDR, uh, smart raw. That's what it was called. Smart raw capture so that it would do something better with the raw photos that it, it, it captured. I'm sure Moment is also doing a good job of this. But yeah, after all, everything I just said, I still use the stock camera app most of the time. And one more hashtag ask Stallman is from friend of the show, Jordan Drake. He says... Is anyone else noticing extremely aggressive skin smoothing on iPhone 11's video capture using the default app? Looks horrible. Wow, controversy there, Jordan. He um he tweeted this, and there is a photo attached of Chris Nichols with some very smooth-looking skin. Now, I, I may ask, is this not just Chris Nichols' original baby smooth skin? Um, could be, but uh, let's assume it's not. Let's assume the photo is the, the problem. Um, the iPhone... I, so, okay, I've only noticed it do this in cases where it's cranking up the smart HDR. And yeah, like I said, in video, they they call this enhanced uh, enhanced dynamic range, extended dynamic range, sorry. And sometimes it does a bad job when, especially when people are wearing a lot of dark. Uh, this was a, an especially big problem in the iPhone XR. It's gotten better from what I've seen. I've seen a lot less examples where it does bother me. But when the camera perceives the scene as having a lot of dynamic range, it starts to screw things up. I don't know. I feel like I don't have a good enough answer. I can't give you a satisfactory answer, Jordan. I will have to do some more of these tests myself. Um, I have seen in very low light that it can have very noise-reduced look to it. It is not sharp in low light. That didn't get a lot better in terms of video. I mean, if anybody doesn't know, night mode has nothing to do with what video mode is doing because, you know, it's not a long exposure in video. You have to still expose at the right shutter speed and the right frame rate. So you're not able to have a long exposure. It doesn't That doesn't make sense. But I do know the sensor has a higher max ISO. So it should be able to be more light sensitive anyway. I've got to test this more. I guess I'll get back to you. But um, yeah, I would just turn, turn on more lights. I don't know. Anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for asking. I'll see you guys on Twitter. And I'll see you in the next episode. This is so weird ending the episode by myself. How do you how do I end these things?